Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irina Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. And I'm Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed on this podcast are our own and not our employers. We have a very special guest today to talk about singledom and society's obsession with coupledom, Emma Lutkin. We are thrilled to have with us today writer, director, and performer Emma Lutkin. Emma was born and raised in New York City and has written for Jezebel, Marie Claire, Glamour Online, and many other publications. In 2022, she published a memoir, The Lonely Hunter, How Our Search for Love is Broken. The information for that is in our show notes for our listeners. M.A., welcome to Strangers on the Internet. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you both. We're excited to talk too. So to give our listeners a little bit of an overview, The Lonely Hunter opens with a scene that immediately reminded me of Bridget Jones's diary. It's a group of friends getting together, but it's a bunch of couples and they're one single friend, in this case, you. And inevitably, conversation comes around to that. How come you're still single, M.A.? Maybe even applying, why haven't you found what we found, coupledom? And you say, I don't really know if I'm ever going to date anyone ever again and everyone loses their minds. They reassure you that you will, they make suggestions of where to meet people, and you're like, I'm just stating what I perceive to be my reality, and maybe I'm okay with that. But it set you off on a journey of, am I okay with that? Am I lonely, or am I content in my singledom? What would happen if I made an intentional effort to date? And your book takes us through the next few years of a committed dating regimen, dating men, women, single people, people who are in polyamorous relationships, dating on the East Coast, dating on the West Coast, as well as periods of singledom, and the questions you pondered and the insights you develop along the way. We have much to discuss. So I'm going to ask a first question, I may. Did you ever worry that writing about singledom would get you labeled in a certain way, or, or maybe a potential mate in the future worries about how he might show up in one of your articles or a future book in, in such a way that it would actually make it harder to become coupled if you ever decide that's something you're interested in? How, what was your thinking around that, that topic? I'm not really nervous about future partners. Oddly, I think that probably anyone I would want to be in a partnership with would understand that this is my work and it like kind of exists separately from me as a person and a partner. I have had people ask about it, but usually they seem like morbidly curious more than like afraid. (laughs) I think in some part of us, in all of us is a little bit like, what do people think about me? What, how would someone describe me? What would they say? So I think they're like almost interested in being written about to some extent. And I have had people, you know, read things I wrote about them specifically and talk to me about it, uh, usually in a positive way, I would find. Um, So that doesn't bother me. I think like in terms of the tone of the book and the subject matter of the book, it definitely changes my perspective on dating and my relationships to other people. And maybe that's the most long lasting consequence, my own perspective. Uh, Other people are definitely less affected by it. So I think that's an easy follow-up to another question I have. So in your book, at several points, you reference Rebecca Traitzer's book, All the Single Ladies. You pointed out that in the present time, 
there are more unmarried women than married women. So in fact, being single isn't as rare as it seems. It isn't actually rare at all. But in a particular funny moment to me, anyway, in your book, you wrote, what even is dating? I asked myself yet again, eating a tub of ice cream in bed. But my question to you is, after all of this, what did you conclude? What is dating? I think that a lot of people are confused about what dating is. And it's almost like in this moment of incredible transformation, especially with lockdown and the pandemic, it changed a lot of people's perspectives on how they relate to others and on what they're looking for. I think for some people, it cast them adrift and made them feel as though they don't have any idea what they want. They've been chasing things. They don't even understand why. And other people were very much like, I want to be settled. I want to be in a family and it's time to get serious. So I think right now we're like discovering we have all these open-ended opportunities when it comes to relationships and love and what families can look like, but we're constantly still being pulled by this old guard, this old fashioned look at the nuclear family. And it's very hard to resist the pull because it's so built into so many institutions all around us. So I'm, I'm kind of excited to see what's going to happen next. You've written about how society makes things unnecessarily difficult for single people. What are some of the biggest problems in that department, if you had to pick like some of your pet peeves and worst examples? Uh, I think that there are examples that are about economics and social standing and litigation. I mean, if you like think about our, the way our taxes are filed, the kind of tax breaks you get if you are a married person, um, if you think about how citizenship is tied to marriage, uh, about who gets time off or leave when they have to care for someone who's sick at home, who's allowed in the hospital when someone's sick and it's their partner. And there have been changes being made, especially within like the efforts of the queer community and activism around that, because, you know, they had to live within found families. Gay marriage was not legal for so many years. So like the patterns of family were very different and established differently. And we see that changing laws and making allowance for different types of family units. But I would say for me personally, like, you know, I'm a cis woman, I'm white, I live in a metropolitan area. So like a lot of the repercussions of being single are not necessarily financial for me. There is a limit to what I can make as a single income household, having to pay rent on my own, etc. But I don't think that that's, I think for me, a lot of it is more social repercussion. That As you get older and you don't join up and sign up to be a wife and a mother, you kind of get edged out of a lot of your other relationships because the people around you are doing those things and they don't really know how to deal with you or they don't prioritize you or make time for you. And that may not be their obligation, but I think we are also very much discouraged from maintaining our relationships outside of our immediate family um, in our culture. No, I was just going to comment that one thing I've noticed is that when people get married that sometimes you, you can't hang out right with them alone anymore it's like it's either them and their spouse or nobody at all so i think that's one of the ways this plays out what you're describing at the end that they're not supposed to, to stray outside of the marriage or whatever even to hang out with a friend or something like that so anyway michelle what are you gonna say yeah, well, one of the things you do in your book is you give a really interesting history of the institution of marriage. And it really had me looking at things differently. So as you described, for most of human history, marriage was really a means through which to survive and have economic and physical safety and to promote survival of the species. And meeting those practical needs was pretty much its point. 
it was actually the norm to seek out fulfilling friendships and even romantic relationships outside of marriage for so much of human history. So in fact, the idea of coupledom as the be all end all of relational aspirations has really only been the case for you said maybe about the last, I don't know, 150, 200 ish years. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about it. I mean, it is pretty wild and pressureful to put all our eggs for safety, security and all of what personal fulfillment entails all into one basket. So of course, there are consequences to that. First, in that if people are aspiring to relationships because it's presented as the golden standard, then they're likely overlooking other valuable opportunities to connect in meaningful ways with other people outside of a romantic relationship. And secondly, we also know that in reality, there's plenty of people in relationships who are also lonely. And so the relationship isn't meeting that as advertised, it fulfills all your needs. So in those kind of cases, do you think focusing on finding or being in a relationship can actually impede people's ability to find meaningful connection? And if so, do you have any suggestions for breaking out of that mindset? I definitely think it's impeding all of us. And I think it really degrades our sense of community and obligation to like a wider network of people. Um, you know, used to be, I guess, considered civic duty. <laughs> yeah, you can see like with the pandemic and lockdown, how ill-prepared we were to care about other people and to care about the consequences of our actions. And there was this intense nuclearity, this like withdrawal and isolation into the family unit. But ultimately, like that didn't really protect most people because when the rest of the world is sick, your family can't be healthy. Like that's just not how we function as human beings who are interconnected. And I, I think you're right that a lot of people believe that they'll have this happily ever after, not only like the, the romantic dream, but the like sense of safety that a marriage can bring or a relationship can bring because they've been told about their lives that that's going to be their safe place in their home. Of course, people do find that sort of support within relationships. Love is real. I think like you can have a beautiful relationship that's supportive and grounding and healthy. But I do think even in those best versions of a romantic intense commitment between two people that excludes all others even the very best example of that can contain a lot of profound loneliness and in the less ideal versions there's quite a lot of unhappiness and dissatisfaction and i think people are very surprised that the thing that they've craved and wanted all their lives can't fulfill all their needs and they feel ashamed to admit it because they've been told that if their relationship is you know right it'll suddenly complete them I don't know that I have a lot of recommendations for people who are in those types of relationships because I'm not in one. So I'm not like living their daily experience, but I always encourage experimentation. And if this like resonates with you within your relationship, I would say try to connect to your community, try to connect to friends, volunteer, have hobbies, just like learn who you are outside of this relationship. And if your partner has a problem with that, then that's a problem with your relationship. I think that's really a strong point. And also like for people who maybe aren't in a relationship, but are chasing it, you know, thinking that that's the thing I should be aspiring to. I think the same advice probably still stands about, you know, find value in these other areas, or at least go looking for value. Don't exclude them. Experiment, as you said, and see what you find. Because if you do become so laser focused on one thing, you certainly have the potential to miss out on all this other stuff. And I really think that providing that context of, you know, it wasn't always this way might actually be really helpful for some people to help them not feel as though it's their fault. Because as you were, I think, kind of implying right now, if you get a relationship, if you have one and it's not fulfilling all your needs, it feels very much as though then you're, you're doing something wrong. And in fact, you may not be. It may just be that 
one relationship isn't meant to fulfill all your needs. And so I really think the history that you gave in there can be so helpful to people about not feeling personalized shame if they're not getting everything they want out of a relationship or if they haven't found a relationship. There's the writer and I think she's a psychologist. I'm sorry if I'm (laughs) mischaracterizing her. But the writer Esther Perel, she makes she had a TED talk and she's written this in her book. But she talks about how, you know, we expect our romantic partners to be so much to us. Like they are our roommates, they're our best friends, they're our co-parent, they're the person who's supposed to keep us sexually engaged and excited. And we all live a lot longer than we used to. And it's just a very, very high demand. So even if you want to be in a monogamous relationship, there's going to be other aspects of what you need that just simply need to be outsourced from that relationship because it puts too much pressure on everybody involved. Now, one related thing is it's funny you're mentioning um, Esther Perel because she's very open-minded, shall we say, about poly arrangements and everything. And you've said uh, in a different interview that you feel like some people do the poly thing in a way that's actually kind of predatory. So when they use third parties to strengthen what is essentially the quasi-monogamous relationship in the sense of like, that's where most of their attention is, maybe that's where all the emotional intimacy is, and then they just sort of bring in these other people for like a sexual need or a temporary emotional need or something like that. Can you tell us more about about that, about your views on how poly stuff is playing out these days? Because it's really, I mean, just a few days ago, they had an actual CNN story on the front page about poly stuff. So CNN discovered <laughs> poly things. So it's going mainstream for real now. So I would just love your thoughts on that. I try to talk very carefully about the poly community and polyamory because I know that they face a lot of like discrimination and misinformation about their lifestyle. And that lifestyle can be expressed in so many ways. Like there's a myriad ways to be non-monogamous or polyamorous. And ultimately I do think it is a form of love and relationship expression that's really healthy and good for a lot of people. And they found like a lot of joy and community within it. My criticism is usually in the way that polyamory or non-monogamy, which are different things, but like that openness sexually and romantically within your relationship. I think there's a lot of ways where that style of relationship intersects with our culture, which is extremely individualistic and also still really hung up on the duality of a couple that can cause a lot of emotional problems that many of us are not prepared to do the self-reflection and mature conversation around to keep you know, predatory behaviors from cropping up and popping up. I think what you're saying is true that polyamory is becoming more mainstream, which means for me that I think it's becoming safer to talk about the things about it that are not necessarily working in the way that we are told that they do. I don't think everyone who enters into a polyamorous relationship immediately becomes like enlightened and capable of uh, managing so many relationships at once in a completely selfless and benevolent manner. And I think we as a society are very individualistic people. We put our own needs first for the most part. This is a generalization. But I think that if you are incapable of seeing others as individuals and see them only as like a source of your own pleasure and your own needs, you know, a lot of people are going to be hurt by that. And that can happen in a monogamous relationship, too, because it's about selfishness and about prioritizing, you know what you want over someone else, other someone else's well-being. So I think these issues are coming up more and more and people are talking about them more and more openly. 
I'm not like for monogamy or for polyamory. I'm probably a more monogamous person myself just because of like my own needs emotionally. But I've dated people who are in poly relationships that seem healthy and happy to me from the outside. Um, You also talked though in your book about what it was like being third person in somebody else's polyamorous relationship at different points and how you did see some of that, well, my relationship with the person who I'm in a relationship with can be put on hold at the whim of the couple, not just between me and the member of the couple who I'm in a relationship with. Do you have any thoughts on or suggestions, advice for somebody who is in that role rather than being in a polyamorous relationship and seeking a relationship with somebody outside of the couple to be that person outside of the established couple who is having an independent relationship with a member of the couple just to uh, know what you're getting into? Or is it just about clear communication between you and the member of the couple that you're with about what is it that we're each looking for here? It just seems like such a tough position that you found yourself in. Yeah, I think it's almost a stereotype at this point to tell people entering polyamorous or non-monogamous relationships to communicate, communicate, communicate. <laughs> like, like you get told that for a reason. And I think before I did it myself, I didn't even understand the level of communication necessary. And I think it has made me think more about communication within a monogamous relationship, too, because we assume we're on the same page about things because there's a social script uh, that we all go along with, especially around monogamy. And I think part of the reason people in polyamorous relationships like are so gung ho for it is because they're like, well, we talk about everything. We don't just assume we don't just fall into monogamy. The reality is, is that every single person has a different idea about what communication means. And if something is very important to you, you need to know as soon as possible if that person can share it with you. And that means getting very clear on your own needs. So in the book, I talk about dating a woman and, you know, we had an ongoing relationship and she had told me that her and her boyfriend were polyamorous. She was not trying to set up a threesome. It was a very sincere, from my perspective, attempt at dating. However, they had some sort of conflict. And one day she just told me, yeah, we've decided not to see other people for a while now. Now, that's like a perfectly fair boundary for them to have. But I didn't really understand it going into it. And so for me, it felt like this guy who I'd never really had any interaction with was getting to decide my relationship was over. Now, people can leave you for whatever reason at any time. Like, that's their right. So I'm not saying they necessarily did anything wrong. But I didn't know to ask, like, what is the protocol for, like, the boundaries within your relationship? Who gets to say we are closing our relationship? Like, and I think those are very important things to understand because not everyone who's polyamorous has a non-hierarchical relationship. A lot of people prioritize still a single partner who usually they live with or like build a kind of foundational relationship with. So that's why it can get very confusing because the rules aren't as clear, which can be liberating too. Another interesting thing that you said in another interview is that people who are serially in relationships, and I don't know if you feel that way also with the with the poly situation, but that people who are serially in relationships might actually be avoiding being really known by any one person. Can you tell us more about that? Because I thought that was a really interesting statement. I don't remember saying that. I'm not sure which passage you're referring to. Can you <laughs> tell me a little more about the context? It was in a podcast interview and you are oh, talking okay. about the fact when people are engaged in serial monogamy that they're like 
you know, it's like, I'm going to date this person and this person and this person. Right. And that like, they don't really want one person to fully know them. I assume you were saying like, that's why they don't stay with one person for like 20 years. Right. Like they just go on and on to the next one and the next one and the next one. That's interesting. I don't remember exactly what I said. I have definitely had a lot of thoughts about people who are, you know, serially in relationships because I'm a person who's gone years and years and years and years without being in a relationship. So it feels like two ends of this extreme spectrum uh, where like for me from the outside, I'm like astounded that they meet so many people, not only who are interested in dating them, but who they're interested in dating as well. Like to me, that seems very excessive. I don't like that many people myself and to the degree where I'd want to bind myself to them romantically or within a relationship. So to me, there is like a certain compulsiveness to that behavior, just as someone might perceive me as being avoidant or like closed off from that kind of connection. And I do think that people who are always in a new relationship without a breather in between are definitely in their own way, avoiding something, whether it's self-knowledge or true connection that built is built on like a more stable relationship and not just like the flush of new love which is very intoxicating of course you've written in an article and i'm quoting i've seen that what gets called love is often just compromise exhaustion acceptance of what should be unacceptable and striving to survive often what is called love is codependency fear of the unknown and the delightful addiction of physical intimacy end quote so kind of like what you were just saying do you feel like a lot of the people you know that are in couples would actually be better off single or is it that while you wouldn't want to be in that relationship maybe these people really are happier that way i want to answer this question in a way that doesn't make me sound insufferable but the thing is is when you have been a single for a very long time the things you'd be willing to accept to leave that state you know I'll say this. I have a lot of friends who are in loving relationships who seem genuinely happy in those relationships, but I see very few relationships I truly envy because I think a lot of them are contingent on acting like, you know, infidelity never happened, that there isn't some enormous age gap that like one of the people isn't like a narcissist. Like there's always just something going on that for me would be a red flag or no, but I find time smooths over a lot of these issues for couples. They're like, they have this like um, lost time fallacy where they're like, oh, I've been with this person for 10 years. So the fact that they got super drunk and didn't show up to my birthday party, you know, you let some things go or like whatever, whatever it is, like some altercation that I think you need to be willing to smooth over or compromise on that maybe me at my big age of 39 <laughs> is not willing to do at this point. Like I am wanting something very specific and that is not easy to find and i think a lot of people have been with someone since they're very young especially if they've been with them a long time they've gone through so many iterations of themselves and that other person so much growing together and they've probably forgotten things you know forgiven things that i that would derail my relationship with a person at this point and that might just be a matter of perspective like where they entered that relationship and who they've become now but I do think also being alone can be quite exhausting. And maybe if I met somebody now who didn't check all my boxes, but also didn't like deeply offend me in some way, I would be like, you know what? Yeah, let's just watch movies every night. Fine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> I just want to rest now and have companionship and someone who will like take care of me when I'm sick. So I think like love can doesn't have to be 
you know, the one, your twin flame, this wild passion that never burns out. And it can sometimes be about companionship and compromise, which isn't always bad. It's just not where I'm at personally. And that's part of my character for good or bad. I mean, you wrote in The Lonely Hunter how hard it can be to ease one's way back into dating after being single for a while. And you've also written about that in some of your articles. What is the top advice that you have for people on that front as to what is helpful or what you found to be helpful? Well, in the book, I kind of immediately launch into all this dating app stuff. And I think at first within the book, I was willing to meet up with all sorts of people. I was sort of experimenting to see what would happen. I think for the sake of listeners' safety, I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> recommend that now. I think it's important to like screen people for red flags, to not meet anyone who makes you uncomfortable or says anything that makes you hesitate. Because frankly, there's a million people on dating apps. You do not have to go out with anyone who gives you like a bad feeling. So, you know, my carelessness, let it be a lesson to you now. Um, however, I do encourage people to go on as many first dates as they can safely and comfortably because you just get better at it and it's an important skill to have i think you know being good at first dates makes you better at talking and interacting with people in general and i know for me after having taken such a long break from dating my first few dates i was like so sickeningly nervous <laughs> and now it doesn't bother me at all to meet a new person which means i can arrive more as myself and be more like sincere about who i am and comfortable with them and that in turn will make them more comfortable. So I think it's like a good strategy for getting back into it. I think that very much comes across in the book. I mean, at least where you're at now, because gosh, you just sounded so extroverted and like you had such an easy time with first dates. So I don't know, to hear that maybe you just get better at it is I think pretty encouraging uh, for some people. One thing we were curious about too is, so you mentioned dating apps, all of that, but have you ever had friends try to set you up and either before or after writing this book and kind of making your opinions on the matter known. And what was that like? How did you respond if they did? Did they do a good job? What do you, how was it? I have very rarely had people set me up, certainly not lately. In the past, I can recall always being very disappointed by it because it feels like when your friends are setting you up, they're making like some kind of judgment about you and what type of person you'd be into. And often it doesn't feel very thoughtful. It just feels like, well, they're single and you're single. Don't you have that in common? <laughs> like it doesn't, it feels, makes me feel unseen, I would say. So I haven't had good experiences with that. I have asked out friends or been like, hey, is your friend single? Would you like pass my number on and have had, you know, nice dates come out of that because that's me kind of being interested in a person to begin with. So I guess I would be open to being set up. I, I'm pretty open to all types of dates at this point, but I have not really had that happen a whole bunch. So speaking of dating apps, uh, we had Nancy Jo Sales with us, who's very critical of them. And, and one of the topics that we've talked about with her and in general is what the dating apps have done specifically to a potentially already problematic male pool. Well, I know you identify as, as queer and you mentioned you date both men and women. Can you tell our listeners what your view is on dating apps generally and the nature of the male pool specifically, to the extent we can speak about it in some generality? Well, I don't feel great about dating apps. I feel like, you know, my feeling about dating apps, have you ever seen that meme of like a surf and they're like suffering and carrying like a big bale of hay and some guy pops out of a well and he's like, 
oh, you're critical of society and yet you participate in it. <laughs> like, I feel that way about dating apps where I am critical of them, but I participate in them. And I think that speaks to how efficiently they've cut off other forms of socializing and meeting people. But if I want to meet people, I do feel like I have to be on them. And yet they're not really a successful way, I think, for most people to really connect and meet a partner. But when I was going through my experiment, they were very efficient for like going on all these dates because it was very easy to just like find people who are identifying as single and like willing to meet up with me based on a few photos and some conversation. So that was convenient. I've also found them very useful when I travel because I'll meet people in a random new city and they want to go out and show me around. And that's really fun. It's actually more fun, I think, than dating in your home town (laughs) maybe less safe but that's how i feel (laughs) however i do think that they have you know they're designed to be games and a lot of tech that we live with now and accept as an inevitable part of life i think are really bad for us overall they're bad for the economy they're bad for people's work stability they're bad for like how we even interact with other human beings on a daily basis and they've degraded all of our general connections with one another like Even the, you know, connection of like having a favorite restaurant you call all the time and you always talk to the person on the other line. Now you dial something into a phone, that app takes money off the top, making the restaurant poorer, making you a little poorer too, because there's all these fees and you don't know the person who's delivering it or the person who's making it. Like that seems so small, but it's not because it's happening a million times over everywhere we go now. And that makes us feel even more isolated and less a part of the world around us. And dating apps do that on the level of romance and love. (laughs) So it's very unhealthy for us. I think dating apps get blamed a lot for what feels like this decrease in respectful, eligible men, you know, because there is this anonymity. There is this sense of disconnect from community that makes people feel like it's more okay to be abusive or cruel or whatever. You know, in the past, usually if you're meeting someone, they're connected to you somehow through a friend, through a workplace, whatever. There's none of that most of the time on dating apps. But I think I think it's more that there's so much happening in our culture right now around misogyny. So I can't entirely blame it on dating apps. Dating apps are maybe a convenient way to facilitate this misogyny. But it's coming from podcasts. It's coming from lawmakers. It's coming from like conservative talking points and campaigns that make are making like basic human rights for somebody with a uterus into like an an up for debate. Like these are things that are degrading the male pool dating pool in other ways that we're just like seeing through dating apps. But I think it's a much wider social problem. You know, it's interesting. So like I've got a zoomed out question and then I think I'm going to zoom it back in. So what you're saying there about all the ways that we see misogyny playing out in a much larger societal level, I think also relates to to this other point you are making about how impersonal things are these days. In fact, I think it's one of those expected, I don't know, we all get frustrated by it, but when there are men in elected office making decisions about women's bodies, who has the right to what information about women's bodies or menstrual cycles or whatever it might be. And then when a man will say something like, well, no, I understand now because I have a daughter or a wife or something like that. Like it has to be personal to them before they 
really think about it and care about it on a more complex level. And so I wonder if that also relates to this sense of we're just becoming more impersonalized as a society such that it allows us to really dehumanize each other in a variety of ways from like individual interactions on a dating app to larger scale. I feel fine making laws that, you know, impact a variety of people. And and so I do wonder about that. Now, as it relates to something in your book, a major point in your book is that when society as a whole decides to care about loneliness, when there's studies that come out and say, hey, loneliness is bad for people, if larger societal units, like I think one of it was like a, I don't know, a UK governmental program or something like that, that you spoke about, when they decide to respond, their response is more about promoting lifestyle changes in the individual rather than looking at problems embedded in those larger social structures. Whereas with loneliness specifically, you argue that it's more helpfully thought about and can be more helpfully addressed if we look at the economic and societal contributors to loneliness and recognize that it impacts different groups of people disproportionately. So hearing that, that gave me the sense that if we could all buy in to concentrating resources to combat loneliness towards those who need it most, those individuals would benefit, but society as a whole would also benefit. Could you explain more about your thinking behind all of that to our listeners about how some people are disproportionately impacted by loneliness and why we should care, why all of us should care, even if we're not in those groups? Wow, that's such a big question, but I will try to. Um, (laughs) No, I think it's a great question and really important and kind of central to the book, but it's all books. So it's like, how can I boil this down? But I would start with just saying we're talking more and more about loneliness in society these days, and it's been framed early on as an epidemic. And I think that there's a choice in that word, and that choice is to pathologize it and to make it into something that is wrong with the individual that needs to be dealt with. And I think there's a very important reason for that. If you're in the U.S., you know that the healthcare system here is like beyond, beyond, sorry, can I curse? <laughs> it's, um, yeah, go for it. It deserves it. <laughs> it's beyond fucked. And it also becomes this thing about lifestyle choices. Like people are being pushed to exercise and diet and do all sorts of things to take responsibility for themselves. But frankly, if you can't afford healthcare, you can't afford health. And I think loneliness is being pushed into this category because to address the societal reasons for why people are becoming more increasingly isolated would require an overhaul of our political system and our, you know, and capitalism, basically. And to admit that and to say, hey, people who are in deep social isolation are in poverty or they're in marginalized groups or they've been through this industrial prison, you know, this prison industrial complex that we have in our culture that like makes it impossible for them to get jobs or housing. Like there are so many issues that are isolating people from society and making them feel like outsiders and disenfranchising them even from like the right to vote. There's so many issues that are are creating this isolation that the easiest thing to do is say, oh, there's a loneliness epidemic and people are so lonely and sad. And, you know, maybe (laughs) if they just like worked on themselves or found a romantic relationship, that would all be taken care of. And I do think it's very real that for a lot of people, that romantic relationship and marriage and children is their safety net. That's what they're depending on to help them get through this like economic, social landscape we're living in. Does that begin to answer it? (laughs) 
Yeah, no, that's amazing. And my follow-up where I do zoom in a little and I'm quoting you here too. So you also gave towards the end of the book what I thought was some nice, just simple, but attainable advice to combat loneliness in a way that challenges those social constrictions and benefits others as well as yourself. So what you had said in the book was, if you're lonely, pick one thing you can do to make the world a more just place and find the other people trying to do the same. That was one thing you said. Another was pick one thing you can do that separates you from other people's humanity and refuse to do that thing. And the third thing that you had said is, and pick one thing you think is wrong with you that justifies your loneliness and ask, who gains power from me believing this about myself? I love this advice. I love it because it's practical, it's action items, but there are things that can help an individual personally and help with this larger issue you spoke about, about connecting with community rather than resisting community. I would really encourage our listeners to think about what is your one thing for each of these areas? But I mean, can you tell us, um, aside from writing this book, which is one of your contributions, what is one of these things that you have done? Whew. Okay. So that's a hard question to answer. No one's ever asked me. And I think that I tend to reassess my life on the regular and re-ask these questions because it changes for me. Um, I think for me, like mutual aid is a really important uh, step. I think educating myself on prison abolition is a really important step and connecting with those types of people because that to me is a really significant issue in our culture and connects to so many things. And I think when it comes to like <laughs> relating to other people, I really try to join groups or do social things that force me to talk to others. I know that sounds like very basic, but I think my impulse is to just constantly be on social media and be online and be somewhere where I'm like, you know, getting zapped with anger and fear and despair or, or like laughing and then sad, you know, it's just, it's like a buzzer. I'm a rat in a cage and I'm just hitting the buzzer and electrocuting myself to feel something. So making the decision to go out into the world and disconnect from my phone is really major in terms of the alienation question. As for asking myself what's wrong with me and like who gains power from believing that, I think writing the book, you know, forced me to confront that question a lot because the reality is I'm still single. And I started writing this book five years ago and I went through all of this, maybe beginning around 32 or 33. So I think like the question of who gains power from this is like very prevalent in the book. And for me, it's just society in general and this expectation of women to fall in line or they're going to be ostracized and alone forever. However, I have noticed that since this book came out, there's much more conversation around these things, especially on TikTok. I know I just said stay off social media, but I think women are very much educating themselves and each other in a way that they didn't before on platforms and just talking very openly and honestly about how they're constantly being warned to get into relationships. And it's largely to the benefit of men who have been told that they deserve a woman to take care of them and that they're going to get that and that they're owed that. And this conflict is coming to a head in so many ways, like around abortion issues, around the rise of incels and like misogyny, as we said. So it's been really interesting to watch and feel validated in that, um, especially after working on this book for so long. I feel like related to this, it seems like a lot of people's theories about what it will take to guarantee dating success, which they define as finding a mate, uh, a lot of these theories are non-falsifiable. 
So this is where I'm wondering, you, you said in, uh, and you actually you know, named an article after that, where like I took everyone's advice and then that still didn't work, basically. I was wondering if you had any people telling you or just hinting at the idea after you wrote that piece and after you sort of ran this experiment, that even though you claimed you were going to do everything everyone said to find a mate, you were doing it with the goal, as you mentioned, to prove them wrong, that it would work. And so you were sending the wrong message into the universe. And this goes back to all that law of attraction stuff. That's a huge pet peeve of mine personally. Uh, but I'm just wondering kind of how much pushback you've gotten about, well, of course, if you went into it with that, that intention of proving people wrong rather than making it succeed, like, of course it wasn't going to work. And, and I just feel like the target keeps moving every time as to what exactly the single person, what step they missed along the way. What do you think? What do I think the step is? No, no, no. I don't, I don't think there is a step. I'm saying like, why did you, did you get any people that were like, oh, well, you say you tried everything, but you actually didn't, you need to do this other thing. You need to try this other thing. Or you had, you send the wrong intention into the universe and that's why it didn't work. Like they keep trying to come up with explanations that are never, Hey, maybe it was bad luck or maybe there is a problem with a lot of the other people you've met rather than with you. Is that even possible? Like, you know, so question mark. <laughs> I think the advice that I got and that I, you know, if I do continue to receive it or come across it, even if it's not directed at me, I think a lot of the advice, advice just speaks to this human desire for control. And it's very common. Like we want to believe that there's some like guided path we can take to happiness or contentment or a successful life and it's sort of like when somebody has some terrible accident right and there's a reportage on it and then you like read the comments and it's full of people being like well I wouldn't have done that I would have locked the door I would have you know buckled my seatbelt I would you know I'd, I'd have fought him off if I had a gun I'd have shot the bad guy with a gun like just a lot of uh, posturing and assumption that somehow by doing all the right things you can avoid a certain fate and you can't because we are human and we can't control everything that happens to us. I do think a lot of love is about timing and yeah, luck of being in the right place at the right time with the right person who's ready to be there with you. And maybe it will happen and maybe it won't. There are definitely things you can do for yourself and for your energy, focusing it towards this thing. If that's what you want, if you want to date, you can date. If you want to try and meet someone, you can make that effort. If you want to like develop yourself as a person, you can do that. But none of it guarantees a certain outcome. It only is about you exercising what power you have within the world. And you know, this this podcast is called Strangers on the Internet, and it is a dating podcast. But we don't feel as though the goal is that people should be dating all of the time. Our goal with the podcast is should you decide that's something you want to do, we want to help you with the considerations uh, that you have and how to engage in this safely and in a way that's fun. But we also very much support the idea of, and if you don't feel like dating right now, then don't enjoy your single life. And so, you know, much of what we ended up talking about today is about how the single life gets shit on essentially, you know, a lot of the times as if it's something you need to aspire beyond. But to come back to this idea of being single can be really great and really rewarding as well. And as you said, I think you're single right now. What's a favorite thing of yours about being single? Uh, I think being able to kind of do whatever I want, which it sounds so general, but in the last year I've traveled a lot and I'm planning to do it coming up. And I 
like that I can make those decisions for myself without having to run them by anybody else. I would hope that if I was in a relationship, that would be possible. But I've definitely dated people in the past where it felt like we were constantly compromising on what we wanted to do with neither person necessarily being happy about it. And I've definitely had my share of experiences, not only with my dating, but witnessing other people where like somebody brings their partner to an event or something and the partner's sulking the whole time and doesn't want to be there. And I'm like that when I see that, I'm just like, thank God that's not me because it's such a miserable feeling to want to be sharing your life with someone and thinking you found that person to do that with. And they're like a little child who doesn't want to enjoy anything you have to offer, you know? And it's very, very common in heterosexual relationships. (laughs) Like you see it all the time. So just having the freedom from that, like, I guess, weight um, is really lovely. And I also do enjoy meeting new people and that can include, you know, romantic connections at times. It's just a lot of freedom in being single that I think people don't really appreciate, you know, until it's gone. Thank you so much for this great interview, M.A. You can find our guests on her website at malotkin.com or on Instagram at aalotkin. All of that information and links to M.A.'s book and other stuff uh, is going to be in the show notes for this episode. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com. There's no the in there. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, or Mastodon, where we are on the Fostodon server with two S's. I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Forini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kuyujuklu for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye.